The Man in Line with Andy Wint. Pastor Mike, good afternoon. Welcome to Man in Line today. Halfway through this administration, we're going around all constituencies talking to the brace of MHKs who serve the constituency. Today, it's Douglas North. David Ashford was first elected at a by-election in 2015 and then at the general election in 2016 and in 2021. John Wallenberg, elected in 2021. We're with Douglas North today on Manx Radio. And uh, Faster Mike, good afternoon. John Wallenberg and David Ashford. Good afternoon, Andy. Nice to be here. Good to see. Uh, Okay, let's get straight to it uh, for Douglas North. uh, Some constituency notes now. Uh, Ray says, I'm a concerned resident of Cedar Walk in Douglas after long correspondence concerning a pedestrian crossing for Cedar Walk. Uh, over two and a half years. We're still waiting for the crossing to be installed. I think the situation is dangerous as the road's very busy, serving Nobles Hospital, Braddon Bridge roundabout. Pedestrians have no safe route to cross the road. Um, what's uh, what's happening? Concerned resident of Cedar Walk. So this is something that me and John have been working very closely on um, and pushing DOI over. We've been working for a long time now to get a crossing point across the lower part of Johnny Watterson's Lane because Ray's quite right. It is dangerous particularly for school children in the morning and the speed of the traffic that goes down there. So the previous Minister for DOI, Mr Thomas, when he was in post, um, pledged that he would actually install a crossing. They did an assessment and it is in the work programme for DOI. Um, I had a question to the House of Keys, to the Minister, not that long ago, um, where he wouldn't give a commitment on timescales, which was very disappointing because we had, both me and John, learnt that it was supposed to be earlier, the part of this year. But we are both going to continue continue to push the Minister um, to ensure that it's put in sooner rather than later because Ray's absolutely right, it is not safe and I must say I'm absolutely flabbergasted there hasn't been a major accident there Uh, John Monenberg? Well, I would uh, absolutely dovetail those comments. It's uh, something, I mean, as, as a matter of fact, it's right outside my house um, and, and I see people crossing that road every day. Um, it, it is absolutely something that needs to be done sooner than later um, and it is frustrating that the ministers in DOI have changed and it seems to be pushed around a little bit too much for my liking so yeah I, I had a conversation with um, the minister this morning about this and uh, it's definitely on the works plan and uh, David and I will keep pushing for that uh, The road's go, going nowhere but getting busier and, and busier uh, isn't it John so uh, I mean uh, as somebody uh, as a first time MHK what is your what's your opinion of the machinations of government and the speed at which government can sometimes run because you were in private enterprise for years and years and years fleet of foot uh, and now you're you're facing a government bureaucracy. Yeah, well, that's exactly how it is. And uh, anyone who's been self-employed for a number of years goes into a machine like the government. Uh, you will be amazed at how long decisions get taken. Um, and action is even longer than that. Uh, the only thing I've seen move at breakneck speed was the gas regulation bill, which uh, I supported. Um, but everything else, it, it takes uh, far too long for my liking. Um, there's a number of pieces of legislation which are out of date as well, and, and that, again, takes years 
to work its way through the through the branches. So I'm not sure that a single MHK can can come into the House of Keys and make things move faster. Um, it, it's 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 a very difficult situation. Um, how can I affect that? I, I, I do what I'm doing already, which is which is pushing ministers on on individual bits of legislation or pushing DOI on on the road crossing. It, it's difficult, but it's it's you know it's it's the way the animal is. Um, we, we just have to make the best of that, I think. Okay, right. Let's go to the phones now. And uh, first of all, we have got John on uh, on man in line. Hi, John. You're live with John Wannenberg and David Ashford. Afternoon, Andy, and afternoon, guests. Afternoon, John. How are you doing? Two questions for you. I'll keep it simple, and then I'll just listen to your answer on air. The first is, what is the purpose of government? And the second question is. Where do you get your authority from? Thank you. Okay, Bye. David Ashford. So in terms of the purpose of government, um, John, the purpose of government is to actually provide public services um, to, that benefit the public at large, so things such as the health service, things such as the police service, um, and to ensure that there is laws in place as well um, to actually govern how society runs and operates. And sorry, I didn't quite catch the second half of your question. Uh, you broke you, up a bit where, there. Where do you get your authority So from? the authority in terms of MHKs comes from the electorate with the general election that's held once every five years. Um, we run a representative democracy, so we basically elect representatives in the constituents who then um, make the decisions on behalf of those constituents for the five years before we're then back up for re-election and potentially replaced if people aren't happy with what we're doing. Uh, John Wannenberg? Um yeah, I, I, of course, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, we need a government. Without a government, you've got anarchy. You know, you want your lights to work. You want your roads to run um, with, with uh, rules. It, it takes an authority, an entity, and, and that's what we have. Um, what was the second question? Where does the authority come from? Well, again, you know, we, we all have a public mandate. The people have chosen us to represent them, so... Yeah, the people are the voice of God, aren't they? Okay. Uh, uh, John called up a couple of days ago, and uh, part of his question, uh, I'm paraphrasing him in now, was um, how do you stop yourself being a delegate for each individual voter? I.e., if a voter says to you, I disagree with what you've said, or I disagree with the way that you have voted in keys, what do you say to them? I mean, you won't agree with everyone. Um, we've got 5,000 um, people in the constituency, and you know, you will have people on equal measure that will be for or against something. So a prime example of that, which is going through at the moment, is assisted dying. Um, I'm chairing the committee um, at the House of Keys looking into this, and I've had people, constituents, who are fully in favour of it and saying, get it done now. And I've got other constituents who are very clearly saying to me, you must not vote for this. And you just have to be true to yourself. You have to. The point of a representative democracy is you balance up the arguments and you come to a decision and then you have to stand by that decision. Um, you will upset some people and you will please others. And that's the game of politics, unfortunately. Uh, you'll make some, you'll be unpopular with some people, particularly something as contentious and uh, as kind of empirical as the assisted dying bill. You will. Um, but what, I tell, what I've always tended to find with the electorate is we don't give the electorate enough credit, I don't think. Um, the electorate themselves always look at things in the round. 
So they won't just look at one particular stance of a candidate or an MHK. They will look at, you know, they will look at the overall picture and do they believe that person is representing them. Um, and they will go out and vote for the candidates they want. As I've said all along, at the end of the day, we're just representatives. Um, we're there for five years. It's a five-year fixed-term contract. And no politician should feel they have a right to be a politician. The electorate can go out and vote them back out just as easily as they voted them back in. And your view on that, uh, John Wannenberg? Well, you know, many of the things which I which I vote on, it, it's a matter for individual conscience. Um, and I will have an opinion on absolutely everything, whether it's the removal of the bishop or whether it's the sister dying. Um, of course, I will take on board what, what uh, my constituents say to me. But one sure way to fail at this job is to try and represent everybody as they would wish. Um, so at the end of the day, I, I will do, take, take a straw poll of, of, of what people think. And that's not, by the way, on social media. It's by talking to people, going out to see them. Um, and then I'll come to my own conclusion and hopefully marry the two of them up. Um, again, you know, you're never going to please everybody. And, and you know what? I don't think I'm going to try to please everybody. Has a constituent ever changed your mind? On? Anything. On anything. Um, no, they haven't changed my mind, but they've certainly brought things to my mind. Okay, uh, which brings me on to a, an email in from Gwen, who just said, can you ask uh, Mr. Wannenberg? She said, uh, I note he voted against the budget. Could you ask him why that was? Very simply, I voted against the budget this year because I also voted against the budget last year. This year was due to the um, spiraling costs of the headcount. Uh, as a point of principle, I object to that enormously. And that was why I voted against it. Now, that said, there is a number of parts of the budget which I totally agree with. Um, but we, we have to make a binary choice, and that was my choice. Okay. Uh, I mean, do you have any answer as to what government can do regarding headcount? Bearing in mind, I think, as uh, Dr. Ellenson said, a lot of that headcount is... Um, Department of Education and Social yeah, Care of course, that's and the DHSC. Answer. Yeah, that's, that's the easy answer. Um, I'm not sure I believe that. Um, I, can't, I can't believe that 800 people in the last seven years have been employed. Every single one of them is a frontline job. I, I, I don't believe that. Um, and it's a difficult decision. It's easy to say we're going to raise taxes. It's very easy. It's far more difficult to say we need to cut here or cut there. And we need to make those rough, tough decisions. And the sooner we start doing that, the better. David Ashford? Yeah, so it's not as simple as just saying, as perhaps the Treasury Minister has portrayed it um, in previous interviews, that all the headcounts going into DHSC or education. That doesn't necessarily mean they're teachers and they're nurses and they're doctors. Um, they can be other roles within DHSC and administration and so on. So I think what government needs to do is they need to start from scratch. We need to go back to basics and actually say, what does government legally need to deliver? So what do they legally need to deliver? What do we require to do that? Then we need to look at, well, you might not legally have to deliver it, but if you didn't do it, it would cause massive problems then we need to look at what are the nice to haves and what are the non-essentials and actually build up this is why i've been questioning the treasury minister about zero-based budgeting because 
I think the way we do it at the moment, just piling things on year after year after year and building up on what, to my mind, I've become more and more convinced is a broken system, just isn't going to work. Um, Einstein, as I said in my budget speech, once said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. In lots of areas, we do that as a government and we need to stop it and start fresh. So, again, what's the answer? Is it outsourcing, privatising, third third sector? So I think it's actually a mix of those. I think all of those are right in different things. So if you look, for instance, at DHSC, we we are fabulously lucky on this island to have some of the third sector providers that we do. Um, I won't name certain organisations because I'll forget others, but we've got got masses amounts of experience out there in the third sector and I just don't feel we're utilising them enough. Um, And we should be. And that will help reduce headcount in government in itself. But then also we need to look at what jobs are we doing and what is actually being delivered because what matters isn't the job that's being done it's what is the outcome and this is one of the things I've said about housing since taking on the housing brief you know what matters is what people see out there what is going to change because no one has ever said thank god that government developed that data set my life has improved massively as a result it's the things that run off that that matter and I think that's where we're slipping up at the moment we're not quite there in actually delivering tangible things that people can see touch and feel um, the public gets confronted with this the fact that government headcount has grown they don't know I mean I certainly don't know where it's all gone government never issues a list of who's been taken on and what functions they're doing but it seems to grow like a fungus Mr Bell cut it back and in the last administration in Mr Quayle's administration it grew now it could be Covid it could be all sorts of things but the public get confronted with this and feel I'm not saying powerless but but out of the loop yeah and I think think there does need to be more transparency around the headcount and the FTE. Um, it's something I'm certainly going to be exploring as an MHK over the next few months with some of the comments that have been made um, in Timwald around it. But I think also, I mean, you mentioned there about the cutback in headcount. Um, it was a very temporary cutback. I think it worked for about two years where the numbers went down and then it came back up. Part of that was there was a cap that was imposed, but the cap didn't work because what it was doing was it was restraining the arbitrary cap was restraining services as well so services that did need to recruit it was putting pressure on them um, so we've got to remember there are certain services such as the ones you've listed home affairs health education um, DOI as well with the roads which we've already spoken about that do need workers out there so what matters is not so much the number of FTE um, full-time equivalent staff but what that FTE is actually doing Okay, let's go to the phones. Tony B, you're live with John Wannenberg and uh, David Ashford. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Andy. I just wanted to ask two questions, really. Really straightforward. Um, Well, I actually don't want to ask one. I just want to ask one question. One question, and David Ashford should be able to answer this, since he's the only one I've ever come across who actually researches what he does. Um, In the Treasury, can we not put in a higher rate of tax for those earning in excess of, say, £40,000 and make that that tax much, much higher than the 20% or 22% we're going to inherit shortly, is there a reason we can't put in a higher rate of tax for a band? Or is it something that we just don't want to do because it's easier to tax the poorer people? 
yeah, well, yeah, well, it's a very good question, Tony, because it's something I raised in my budget speech this year, asking the Treasury Minister, did he not consider maybe a 25p or 30p band on those over 50,000? Um, and I didn't get an answer to that. Um, but in relation to the amounts that are raised, if you look at the profile of people's incomes, um, the larger amount of people are actually in the lower income profile. So the uh, as you graduate to 50,000 and above, the actual amount you raise by a higher rate band isn't quite as much. So I can give a couple of examples, for instance, where if you introduced um, a, tw- a 25p rate over 50,000, um, that would actually raise you um, roughly around about 10.5 million. Um, a 30p rate on fi- oh, people over 50,000 would raise you about 21,000. But one of the big problems that we've got is the thresholds for income tax have remained steady. So that has actually had the biggest impact on those on lowest incomes because as their income rises, more and more of it is going in tax. So the actual tax burden is falling hardest on the lowest and middle income earners. And I've made very clear that if the Treasury Minister doesn't do something to address that in the next 12 months, he can't count on my support next year for the budget. John Wallenberg? Well, I mean, it's very it's very easy to draw the conclusion that uh, the lower people are paying more because they have less and that can't be right okay uh, i mean do you think this with um, with capping the the uh, thresholds and what have you this is going to squeeze people the, the the squeeze middle as it were yeah absolutely it is and there's no way around that i mean and that can be construed as not being very really fair on people who can't afford that no and that's what i've just said and uh, you know it's very easy to do that let's be more intelligent about it the people who got more should pay more tony yeah, uh, the, I think they had great answers. So there is no reason why he, could, he couldn't have done it. He just didn't want to do it. And I don't think that a 30p increase is the way to go. I would say 50% once you get over 45 or 40% once you get over 45 or over 40 and then 45 and then 50 as you go up on each, on each increment, you increase the tax levels. And that would bring in a lot more money than just the lower tax level. And you could have reduced the impact on the lower earners by dropping it to 1%, which would be far more equitable if you think about it. Now, I don't want you to comment on that. That's just my opinion. I hope you agree with me, but there you go. The other thing I want to mention, Andy, is I've just um, unfortunately got very old, and I I wanted a, uh, a vaccine which is supposed to stop shingles. I made an appointment. The day of the appointment, it was cancelled. And it turns out we don't have any shingles vaccine in the island, and the health minister doesn't seem to know this or doesn't seem to care about it, and neither do Manx care, as far as I can tell. I was told that there is no prospect of us getting a vaccine in the island so you can address that issue for people who are over 70. And this is on the government website that you should get this vaccine. It's on, actually on their, their vaccine list. And uh, it's just a disgrace. So you've got people who are over 70, and until the budget comes back in, in April, that's what I was told, and I might, I might be wrong, or the person who told me might be wrong, but I'd like that clarified, and I'm going to go to the health minister with it. Now, I, again, David Ashford has got some experience in this, so I'd like his comment on, does he think that's right? 
Yep. So, Tony, this is this exact question I asked the health minister in the House of Keys around about three weeks ago um, about the shingles vaccine and access to it. Uh, my understanding is it's not restricted by the budget, but um, at the t- this time, I don't know where that's come from, and it may be worth you speaking to Laurie Hooper about that um, because I certainly haven't been told that. But my concern was around the criteria. Our criteria for access to the vaccine is different on Ireland to those in the UK, um, and the tr- the minister actually said to me that there was a paper coming to the department end of January to look to actually equalise the criteria between us and the UK but I haven't heard that there's none available on Ireland if that's the case and someone meets the criteria that's deeply concerning because the shingles vaccine prevents there being further complications for people in a broad range of vulnerable conditions later on Um, so it might be worth raising with Laurie if you've been told it's due to budgetary constraints because I'm not aware of that Um, it was only like I say, the the criteria that I heard was different. Okay, all right, Tony. Thanks. Cheers, and uh, thank you very much, guys. Bye. Good to thanks, hear from Tony. you, uh, Jill W. Dropped me a note in just to say, actually, we had a shingles vaccination last Monday, so there will be some, uh, but um, not as much as we want, obviously. Uh, the Douglas North MHKs are on man in line through till one. Text, email, call, and WhatsApp. We're back to the lines in a moment. Located in Upper Douglas, Woodburn House offers an elegant, one-of-a-kind space to host your unforgettable event. Celebrate your love story and say I do to Woodburn House. Our 2024 wedding diary is now open and our wedding planner is here to take care of every element of your perfect day and make your dream wedding a reality. Woodburn House. Visit woodburnhouse.im or call 888300. That's 888300. I began to struggle with the stairs, but I didn't want to leave our family home. So my daughter told me about Acorn Stairlifts and their new showroom in Douglas. I was able to try the stairlifts and find the right one for me and the home I love. They were so friendly. The whole process was hassle-free and they offered the whole package from installation to servicing. Choose the island's first choice for stairlifts. Acorn Stairlift, South Key, Douglas. Call Acorn Stairlifts now on 672 414 or call into our Douglas showroom. Construction waste today. Tells recycle for another day. A builder skip or two. Tell skip will bring to you. At Tell Skip Hire and Waste Disposal in Snugborough, you only pay for the waste you bring. For waste disposal and skips, give us a call on 677-137. That's 677-137. Visit Tells today or find Tells Limited on Facebook. Call Tells Skips today. 677-137. Whatever your business, whatever its size, you can always rely on the island's leading fuel and oil supplier to keep you moving. Ellen Vanin Fuels, powering the island and powering industry. Call us on 844-000. Every Sunday afternoon here on Manx Radio at 4 o'clock, join myself, Simon Clark. As Mish, Phil Gorn. Live with Gullis Gaggin. We clarify and translate some Isle of Man place names. Rietna Slagen. Well, Riet is a view, and then N Slagen is the hills, but in the construction there, it means of the hills. So Rietna Slagen, the view of the hills. Plus, we go through some of the Manx words and dialect. Surely everyone knows Giel, don't they? Mm, Mis- they? Mischief. That's Gullis Gaggan, live here on Manx Radio every Sunday afternoon at four. 
The Man in Line with Andy Wint. I don't know whether you know, whether you spot it. We're 60 years old this uh, year. And uh, every week on Man in Line, we're looking back. Monday and Friday, we look back at personalities and events over the past 60 years. And every Wednesday, we go to look at buildings. Uh, revisiting Kelly's Eye with Peter Kelly and the late David Callister. Today, we're looking back at the day or the year that B&Q was built when B&Q appeared on the Isle of Man. I don't know whether you know, but the Q in uh, B&Q stands for quail. I don't know whether they're Manx or not. Now, to really important subjects, uh, Michael dropped a note in to say, what's happening to the Manor pub? And the man for the job is John Wallenberg. Oh, well, I'm not sure about that, but uh, I, I did speak to Heron and Brady last week and they gave me an update and, and that is to say that the Manor Pub has still been rewired and thereafter will be, be painted and that work will take up until the next six, seven weeks and after that, uh, hopefully we will get a date as to the reopening. So so that's pretty much up to date from last week. Have you heard, I mean, I heard all sorts of rumours that it was going to be closed and turned into a housing estate and knocked down and what have you. I've, I've, I've heard various rumours, which is why I put the call into Heron and Brady, and that was what they told me last I mean, week. The important thing to point out is that Heron and Brady doesn't actually own the site. The site's actually in the ownership of Douglas Council. Oh, really? It's actually a lease site. Right. Um, so, yeah, there does from time to time. Um, and I've been around the block, Andy, as you know, and these, these rumours circulate about every three or four years. But the actual site itself is in the ownership of Douglas Council. It's not in the ownership of Heron and Brady. OK. Howard, you're live with John Wallenberg and David Ashford. Hello, Andy. Uh, hello, David. Uh, uh, Mr. Wannenberg. Um, yep. Could you do me a favour first, Mr. Wannenberg? You're very faint on the on the microphone. Uh, difficult in hearing you um, occasionally. But um, I'm going back to the Manor Hotel. I can remember that as a private house mm-hmm. when it was um, when they first built Pulliston Estate in the 1949-50s. It was a private house. And the little cottage down on Ballinard Road was the lodge house for the manor, uh, the manor, Williston Manor. So that's a little bit of history for you. But the question I would like to ask, either or either can give an answer. In the Howard Quayle administration, I think it was that one, the chief minister said we're going to reduce the number of persons working within the government uh, that was a broad scope because that covered all the road workers and everything, all the manual workers, and then going up into the offices. And it was, there was a voluntary scheme where you could take early retirement, a voluntary scheme where you had a redundancy. But normally when there's a redundancy, that job it becomes non-existent. Uh, but what I'd like to know is there seems to be a massive increase in the number of um, employees within government and we can only assume it's within the civil service um, somewhere about nearly 800 people how many of the people who took early retirement uh, redundancy etc have returned to the civil service or in government and um, not necessarily in the job they were in, but in another part of the administration. Is there any records of people returning? Because that would give them, in a sense, continuity on their government pension. John Wallenberg? I don't have the answer to that uh, question. Um, All I would say is that I totally agree with you that there's, there's far too many people 
being employed by governments. I mean, you mentioned the the 800 people that you just said. I mean, effectively, that's 1% of the population. And just in the last seven years, you know, and and, and I say it tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, we're going to struggle to find some people who are not employed by government soon if we carry on the way we're going. Uh, But that's a useful question as as, as to what you say there, Howard, and uh, I'll I'll see if I can follow that up. And do you think it's anecdotal, uh, the the, the case of people leaving government employ and then, uh, you know, coming, going out of the front door and coming back in the back door as a consultant or or, um, freelance? Well, have I heard of it happening? Absolutely, I have, yes. I mean, two minds there. I mean, certainly they, they would bring back their skills and their expertise and their contacts. Uh, but equally, if you've taken you've taken the payment to leave, then, you know, give someone else a shot. Uh, and my thoughts are, are pretty much in between. But you know what? I, never mind the individuals. It's, it's the sheer number, the volume of people, which makes me really, really uncomfortable. David Ashford? Yeah, so in terms of your question, Howard, um, from memory, the Mars scheme was the Bell administration, not the Quail one. Um, it was slightly before the Quail administration. Um, it was the Mars scheme that allowed for the redundancies. Um, as part of that scheme, again, I'm doing this off memory, you had to, um, the job had to be basically non-functional had to go and the person couldn't immediately simply return to government if they'd actually taken Mars. Um, I remember putting a question in the last time round I was a backbencher when I first came into Timwood around the number of people um, and contractors that were returning who had actually previously left government and although there were some the numbers were actually quite low and they tended to be in the frontline departments such as health home affairs um, particularly for instance I believe the police were we're bringing some back with experience to do certain bits of work um, and also education as well where people might have retired as teachers but were then going on to the bank um, for the teachers um, so 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 it was exceptionally limited in terms of pure civil service there wasn't that many uh, maybe it's a question worth asking again to see what the situation is now um, but certainly the way it stood with Mars um, people couldn't just come back from memory when the Bell administration did that Howard? Yes, that sounds about right, because as I say, if um, a job becomes redundant, the job becomes redundant, the person becomes unemployed, and uh, obviously they can't just walk back into a job that doesn't exist. But I can appreciate where the, the health, the police, and the nursing, because they're all vocations, but um, people working within government, there are a lot of surplus and they're walking around. <laughs> they used to say, if you have a clipboard in your hand, you can walk around all day and do nothing. And it works, because you look industrious, but there's actually no work getting achieved. But uh, yes, thank you anyway, gentlemen. OK, all right, good to hear from you. Thanks, Howard. Uh, here's another message in for David Ashford and John Wallenberg. Uh, last time, I voted for both of you based on doorstep conversations on how you would help young people with housing, <laughs> says Pam. Can you ask, uh, John and David, after three years, my 27-year-old daughter is no further forward. Indeed, she's in a worse position. Rent's astronomical, never going to get on the housing ladder. Pam's daughter is leaving the Isle of Man. She's going to the UK. Another young taxpayer leaving. I know this is something that you've um, been vocal on, Mr. Wallenberg. Uh, indeed, and both my elder sons have left the island as well. Um, it's 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 a very hard situation to turn around, and it, it certainly won't be turned around tomorrow, as we've ably proved the last two years. 
Um, personally, what do I think? Uh, I would probably, have to, if I had the conversation with, with Pam on the doorstep, but what I would have said then is what I say now, we need to build more houses and we need to build more social houses. Um, that would be an enormous game changer. Uh, we need to look at as to how many landlords can own how many properties. You know, landlords owning hundreds of properties. I don't think that's a good thing. Um, it's certainly legal. They're allowed to do that. But is, is it good for our young people? No, it's not. Was it co- a common conversation when you were canvassing in 2021? Oh, absolutely it was, yeah. John, uh, sorry, David Ashford. Yeah, so this is one of the very reasons I agreed to take on the housing communities brief that I now hold, because I want to do something about this. I said at the start of this programme, Andy, that, you know, what matters to people out there is what they can physically see. And one of the problems, I'll be quite blunt, over the last two and a half years is people have not seen things shift in housing. Yes, there's been a lot of data collection, a lot of strategy. That now needs to turn out into a reality for people. So we need more affordable housing units being built. This administration so far has delivered 100 affordable housing units but it's not enough if we're going to meet the economic strategy ambitions has got to be more as john said social housing um, although there's been the odd unit here added here or there or public housing as we call it these days i keep getting told off for using social housing um, public housing it's not actually been that much change in the last 20 years in terms of the numbers we need more of that but also what we need which always gets forgotten about is last time housing so housing for people to downsize into to release the general housing stock as well um so it's a myriad of things we've got a lot going on at the moment so for instance there's new uh, there's new affordable housing developments going on in balasala colby ramsey um we've got the we've done amendments to the shared equity schemes to try and open them up and those shared equity schemes are coming up for review again um we've also um done amendments to the income thresholds for general needs housing but i still think there's further work to be done there um in terms of a essential workers we've got a consultation out um, which might just have closed but um, if not it's still it's still active for people to consider um, around how we treat essential workers and what housing we can do there we've got the objective assessment of housing which actually looked at what the housing need is on Ireland that's actually just been completed the housing board has looked at that and hopefully we can present it to councillor ministers in the next few weeks and that will then start moving things forward and one of the other crucial things in terms of those that do rent was having an arbitration scheme between landlords and tenants um, to be able to deal with conflict that is going to come in this year but the key driver now has to be actually delivering and building houses over the remainder of this administration it came up on the doorstep time and time and time and time again it formed a major part of my manifesto and that's why I agreed to take on the role because I want to be trying to drive this forward When was the last time any housing was built in in Douglas North? Would that be the new estate by the new cemetery? So the last big um, build was Retinashia, which is the one across um, from Williston, that was the that was all affordable housing at the time. It was all first time buyers. Um, that was the last big one in Douglas North. Um, we're not the most uh, rural of constituencies. No. I think after Douglas East, we're the, the second most urban actually. Um, so, so there's not an awful lot more land to be built on in Douglas North. So, is it that difficult? I mean, if it was built, if that was built, why can't another one be built? Another affordable housing estate be built? Well, it can if you work with the developers. It's identifying the correct land and actually working with developers I mean one of the things I've said for a long time that needs to change within our planning system and I said this when I was chair of planning as well is around the commuted sums where at the moment developers can buy their way out of building 
affordable housing on sites. Um, they can actually give commuted sums to go into the housing fund or build infrastructure in the developments as well. The rules around that need to change. We need to be driving forward because otherwise, not just Pam's daughter, but that whole generation is going to go. Mm. And as I've said in Timwood time after time, the economic strategy won't be worth the paper it's written on if we don't get housing right. With David Ashford and John Wannenberg, Douglas North MHKs, and uh, Juan's on now. Hi, Juan. Hey, good afternoon, Andy. Afternoon, um, uh, guys, John and uh, David. How are you? Hi, Juan. Very well. Yeah, good. Hi, good. Um, I don't want to divert off my subject, but just listening to um, what you were saying before, John, I, I totally agree. I mean, the the the, the uh, size of government is, is way too heavy. And as Howard said, um, we have to be careful of the people that we are getting rid of. And that's the paper shufflers and the post-it note brigade um, and not get rid of the people who are doing the work on the bottom floor. Um, but, yeah, government government is, is um, far way too heavy. Um, and that's taken a lot of our reserves from us. Um, as far as housing goes, um, I, I'm, I'm in an area at the moment where I, I came back five weeks ago, the land was empty. I came back five weeks later and, and there's um, a 300 house apartment up in, in, in wood built <laughs> and it's ready for topping out um, and uh, all, all the inside being done, but the frames are all up. So that things can be done at speed and you talk about emergencies um, and I don't see anything happening at any great speed to, to cover emergencies. And I've said before about manufactured homes is a way to, to solve your emergency for the short-term periods. Um, but again, nothing seems to be happening very fast. And going on to um, uh, older people's communities um, in, in the States, they have a lot of communities for over 50s with um, a clubhouse, communal activities inside, um, with restrictions for people that are over 50s and no children. So maybe that kind of thing might be an answer for, for going forward in the Isle of Man. But that's not my main thing. My main um, consideration, Andy, you said yesterday about the chief minister and he had a direction. He was driving the bus. And I'm just wondering which bus he's driving and whose direction he's going in, who, who's actually set in the direction of this bus. Um, now, David, you've been inside the coven, so you know what goes on inside there. But I wanted to ask both you guys, um, first of all, your views on um, the um, uh, vote of non-competence in the chief minister. Um, for a long time now, I've seen that there's, I haven't seen as much disrest from people at the moment, and I'm sure you all know by looking at social media the amount of disrest that that's going on. People are concerned about it's not so much taxes getting raised; it's what you're going to do and how the money's going to get spent. Who's advising you, and is ministers in a position to actually um, take the reins here um, on if they're getting advised wrongly? Um, so that would be my first thing on what your views are about um, the chief minister's vote of incompetence. Okay. And also, and the second what, would one you is... to, what would you do to reform government going forward? Because there definitely needs to be a reformation. Something's not working properly. Um, and we're taking directions from far too many places, which is not relevant on the island. So what would you guys do to reform government? OK, John Wannenberg. Um... Well, the first thing I'll say, um, I, I wasn't one of the people who supported Alf Cannon in becoming chief minister. Uh, and for the record, I would not have supported uh, Alex Anderson either. And and I would not have supported David Ashford because they were all pre ministers in the previous uh, administration. And I was dead set against that. Um, now, having said that, I, I, I'm very uncomfortable with um, trial by social media. Um, I, I don't think if you remove Alf Cannon... 
and you put in anybody else of the 23, that any of the problems we have today will disappear. Um, so would I support the no confidence at the moment? I don't think I would, no. I think what people expect from their, their representatives, the Hasukis, they expect, they, they rightfully expect integrity and, and character and courage. And, and none of the things I'm seeing at the moment bring those things to mind, those, those, those characteristics to mind. And uh, we're in a hard place, but, but we need to get through it. You know, when you refurbish a house, it looks an awful lot worse before it looks better. Okay, and reforming government? Uh, I won't be very popular for saying this, but I think there should be uh, far fewer MHKs. Okay, David Ashford. Yeah, so in terms of the first bit, I think when it comes to votes no confidence, I, I would say you've got to be very careful about the law of unintended consequences. Nobody has, none of my colleagues have put forward to me what the alternative is at the moment. Um, and nobody, to be frank, has put forward vote no confidence either. We keep hearing about a vote no confidence. Well, any member can table that if they wish, but nobody yet actually has. They've talked a lot about it, but nobody has really given me what the alternative is to the this administration at the moment um, and you know the way I'd describe it is if you're on a bus speeding down the road um, the last thing you do is shoot the driver um, so I, I think you know I, I just worry about what comes afterwards because people always say oh well things can't get any worse well things can get worse and you know there's the old phrase isn't there this is the worst administration till the next one um, and I, I do worry about that but having said that I do feel there is a disconnect between government and the people out there the people I speak to just feel more and more divorced from what they're hearing from government. The messages that are coming out don't bear reality to their day-to-day -day lives. So the plea I would make to government is they need to start thinking uh, more and actually listening more to the people that they represent and ensuring that, you know, that what they're doing actually has tangible benefit on the ground. Because like I say, we can discuss as much as we want in the hallowed halls of Timwald and government. What matters isn't what we discuss it's what happens out there what people see that's what people want and as for reform of government i'll stick with what i've always said which is we need local authority reform five authorities and we need one single government north the, south east west and douglas yes um, that's what i've always supported for local authorities and in terms of government um, at government level let's be blunt we need one single government not departments that have all their own independent legal entities going off doing whatever they want. We need one government. Alamand government at the moment does not exist as a legal concept. It needs to. Um, and then we might get a bit of joined up government and heaven forbid we might actually start getting some results as well. Uh, back in a moment with final words from John Wannenberg and David Ashford. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast to inform all our listeners about the huge range of bathrooms and showers on display at Pacesetter. Yes, you all know that Pacesetter is known as the island's largest tile store, but I'm here to tell you that their bathroom displays are truly inspirational. Visit Pacesetter on Harris Terrace, where you'll discover a fabulous collection of stylish bathrooms. There's something to suit everyone, with design available. Pacesetter bathrooms and showers to show off about. Have you been invited to take part in the Household Income and Expenditure Survey? It's one of the most important surveys for our island because the information you provide is vital data for our island's financial planning. It helps us calculate our VAT revenue from the UK. Plus, it gives us a better understanding of the financial strains on residents so we can support those who are struggling. March is the last month you can take part. So visit gov.im forward slash 
H-I-E-S now. In life, we plan for birthdays, anniversaries and holidays. But what about planning for the unexpected? I've worked hard all my life. I want to make sure everything's in place for my family. Man Benham understands. We specialise in enduring powers of attorney, mental health receiverships and are there for you when mental capacities decline. Thanks to Man Benham, your legacy is protected. Secure your family's future today. Visit manbenham.com because peace of mind is the best legacy. Here at the Ramsey Park Hotel, we're delighted to introduce our new executive head chef, Leslie Jacob. With a food philosophy of classic food combinations and flavours and his international experience, Chef Leslie excels in both new world cuisine and classical cooking with the emphasis on great ingredients combined with skill and intelligence to delight diners. Call 818123 to book the Lakeview Restaurant at the Ramsey Park Hotel and discover seasonal specials, lunchtime offers, winter a la carte menu, Sunday roasts and more. The Man in Line with Andy Wint. It's Douglas North today with John Wannenberg and David Ash for the next... Uh, um, constituency man in line is a week today, Wednesday the 6th. Alfred Cannon and Tim Johnston will be in representing Air and Michael. And David, you're live with John Wallenberg and David Ashford. Hello there, hi. Um, in 10 months' time, uh, the new building regs come in where you can't fit a gas or an oil boiler into a new property. You've got to go with renewables. And we've been talking about uh, affordable housing for years and... Um, generally first-time buyers, and I'd like to know what the panel think about the fact that it's going to add thousands of pounds to a new build, which pushes the affordability out of the reach of many affordable housing and first-time buyers. Not only that, who's going to be installing these? Who's going to inspect it? Who's going to be maintaining it? Who's, um, if you want a mortgage on a property and the surveyor turns up, what knowledge is he going to have of all the renewables? Because there's nothing on Ireland to give tradesmen and professionals the insight into what's going to happen in 10 months' time. Uh, David Ashford? Yeah, so um, just in terms of that, David, there are several companies I know that are already gearing up in relation to this. Um, So we're already getting their personnel trained um, to be able to cope. In terms of the affordability, um, obviously, as one of the things we were very careful not to do was to try and move too quickly too early. So we are moving in line with many other jurisdictions, which actually means the price of the installations is actually coming down. You only have to look at where the price point was to years ago three years ago four years ago to see that coming down it will come down further and when you build affordable housing as well it's very rare to build it in a small number of units you normally do large number of units which again gives you the capacity around price um, so that is one of the things that is being factored in um, so for instance between 24 and 26 now um, we're looking at potentially another 155 affordable housing units and that will be factored in um, to it to ensure that it doesn't actually push affordable housing out of the affordable category. Uh, uh, John Wallenberg? Yeah, well, I agree with David. But, you know, at the end of the day, when, when do we make the changes? Um, there's never an ideal time. Uh, but we've, we've got to go forward as we mean to go on. And, you know, as the MUA chairman, what I, what I can say is that the more houses they build, the more literacy will be used, and I'll be a happy guy. Okay. All right. Thanks, David. Just before you go, you just... Uh uh, David just mentioned uh, uh, looking at other jurisdictions. Let's look at another jurisdiction. If you want, uh, if you want help with um, renewables in the UK, you can get a grant up to um, I think it's eight and a half thousand pounds for ground source, uh, for air source, eight heat pumps. You can get grants for solar. You can get grants for putting an electric 
charging point in your garage. The government wants to go green. Where's the money? So there's the energy efficiency grants, which are done through DFE. Um, and I know the Treasury has been looking at how they can utilise um, parts of the Climate Change Fund as well in relation to grants. But there is a whole swathe of grants around solar, around other aspects um, that are on the DFE webpage. OK, thanks, David. Good to hear from you. Uh, finally, for uh, John Wallenberg and David Ashford, uh, here's a question in, and this is from Alison, who says, uh, horse trams to the sea terminal or not, John Wallenberg? You know, I was dead set against extending them um, from the War Memorial to the to the um, sea terminal building, but I've had the conversation, so going back to the topic of... of, of uh, the hour this morning you asked me has anyone changed my mind and yes they have changed my mind but that was Charles Garden Alex Brindley I went into conversations with him and on this aspect I think we should go back to the sea terminal yeah Yeah, I've been always very clear on this Andy you know if you're going to run the horse trams you've got to run them the full length at the moment it's a tramway to nowhere Okay, we've been live today with our Douglas North MHKs, uh, David Ashford and John Wallenberg and uh, the next surgery John Wallenberg is it's the third Saturday of every month. Okay, so that will be when? Trying to work that out. It's going to be the first. Um, first, 8th, 15th, is it? Try and get David my Ashton. calendar up. It is 16th. The 16th Saturday, the 16th Saturday, of March. And it's going to be when? 11.30 to 1 at Williston School. Williston School. And you're there with some Douglas councillors, I yeah, think. Yeah, well. we normally have all three Douglas councillors present for Douglas North as well. Okay. Uh, thanks for being with us today, John Wallenberg. Yeah, my and, pleasure. Uh, and by the way, will uh, will you be standing next time, Mr. Wallenberg? Time will tell. David Ashford? I never decide until about six months before, you know that, Andy. Thanks for being with us today. So we're back with an open line tomorrow. And next Wednesday, Aaron Michael, Mr. Cannon and Mr. Johnston will be on. If you want to follow up, email maninline at manxradio.com or the answer phone on 682631. Thanks to Chris on the phones today. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. W-I-N-T 60 years serving you as the nation station. This is Manx Radio. Peter, what's Kelly's eye looking at today? Today, David, in all the programmes we've done to date, we've been very careful to watch our P's and Q's. Yes. And today, we're watching our B and Q's. We are. B and Q. Entrance, exit. You can't miss it, can you? You can't. And most people will say, it's never changed. But it has. When did it open? It opened the 14th of July, 1986. Yes. So 19 years old, almost 20 years old. And not all that long after it opened, a few years, five years, whatever, uh, it was extended. And if from where we're standing at the bottom of the car park, the, the entrance as it is now was built out. I don't remember before, it was just sort of a, a doorway straight into the building. So they mm. built out this porch and put the big B&Q lettering on the side. Um, but if we look to the right of that, you can see where it says customers loading only. There's uh, a large opening which was filled in. Yeah. Can't remember whether that was a window or staff entrance or what it was, but that was the end of the building. So and they added on, three, well, four, not five. quite as much again, but yeah, well, s- six bays. Of course, it was a portal frame, steel frame. Yeah. Because uh, you can see the change in colour of brick, which certainly increased it by 40% more anyway yes, absolutely. Um, and 
it's ongoing because now they're, they're putting a mezzanine floor in on part of it and who knows one day that might actually be complete first floor yeah um, and it's forever popular it's a straightforward building it, it's as far as I know was an in-house design by B&Q one politician uh, said it'll never last and, and, and how they have this habit of opening up and getting special offers because they get good deals from the suppliers but they'll be gone and here we are 19 years later yes. uh, and it's still here In its very, very simple form though I mean, apart from the big B&Q on the front there it's nothing except a straightforward set of um, panels really, isn't it? Yeah, it's an industrial building and inside there are no frills either but but this is a formula that this, this is what B&Q have in various places throughout the country. Nowadays, some of the more modern ones are a different design, but the, the concept is, is the same. And this, I suppose, is an American idea, really, initially, but this, this is the way retailing is going. Part of Island Life for 60 years. This is your Manx Radio.